0: The Science of
2: Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Science of Sports podcast. I am Ross Tucker today without my usual co host Mike Finch. That's because Mike. Is currently sitting on an aeroplane which I guess would be somewhere over Europe because he's on a flight back from Amsterdam. This after spending a week and a half in Budapest covering the World Athletics Champs, as you may know from our coverage last week. So he will be back tonight and we are planning to record a podcast recap of those World Athletics Championships in which I will no doubt continue to get jealous at the great experience it seems Mike had over there. I certainly enjoyed World Champs. I thought it was one of the better ones in recent memory. And I hope that you enjoyed our coverage of it, whether it was through live Instagram posts or listening to the podcast that we made available. Those of you who are patron members would have heard all those podcasts. Plus, there was some really good engagement on the patron message boards about some of the action we saw from Hungary. We shift gears now that the world athletics champs are finished, and we move on to the next major global competition, which is the Rugby World Cup that starts in a week and a half. Now, I'm obviously intimately involved in the rugby world, and so we are planning to do a couple of podcasts on the sport with particular reference to safety, player welfare, concussion, brain injury, the things that dominate, I think unfortunately dominate, some of the coverage of rugby even when rugby matches happen and here I think for instance of the Owen Farrell controversy recently. So what we plan to do is to explain why changes have been made and how they've been implemented and what the intention is and where some of the challenges have been. So we're looking forward to that discussion in the context of the Rugby World Cup in France. It won't be exclusively about rugby for the next while though. There is a Vuelta Espana on which is shaping up to be incredibly competitive so far it's been full of controversy yesterday we've managed to get all the way to the finish line before the controversy hits and then the stage winner and new race leader Remco Evenepul crashed into someone about 50 yards beyond the finish line and stood up with blood coming down from a cut just near his left eyebrow And with the potential, obviously, for a significant head impact there. And in fact, Deborah Latouf got in touch on Patreon overnight and said, what do we think of that? Should that be uh, an accident that would necessitate a concussion screen? And of course, they may well have done that. It's possible that once he finished his his, uh, jersey ceremony and his obligatory media interviews, he went off and had a screen. I fully expect that he will start the race in the red jersey today. But this I guess is one of the problems for all sports, cycling is one of them, where you have these incidents which have clearly got the potential to cause a head injury and then you're very much reliant on people on the ground to do the necessary tests to take those seriously enough and also relying on tools that we know are imperfect. Um, Sometimes players pass those with concussion, sometimes they fail them without. And so all the sports that involve head impacts however infrequent or frequent, have got some challenges in this regard. So even cycling, it seems, <laughs> circles us back to the concussion issue. But it is not all we'll talk about. We'll talk a little bit about the, uh, the, the Vuelta action. Some of the physiology is really interesting. We've got, for instance, Jonas Vingegaard, who's going for the Tour Vuelta double, which is very infrequently done because the physiological demand to recover from the Tour de France and then to regain the training status in time for the Vuelta is often too much to ask. And in fact, in that regard, Gareth Davies, who's one of our most prolific members on Patreon, shared with me a very interesting article that was published in Velo News. And it was called, How Jonas Vingegor trained to crush Tato Pogacar at the Tour de France. And they basically interviewed the trainer at Jumbo Visma, the head of performance, a guy called Mathieu Haybourg. And he talks about the key concepts. And one of them was consistency. Another one was training strengths rather than weaknesses. And it's interesting to compare what Vingegaard would have done in the time between the Tour and the Vuelta compared to his build-up to the Tour. And then to look at the implications that has for performance. So let's allow that race to develop over time. And then we will have a really good discussion, I think, around what we are seeing. We've got, obviously, Evanapool, Roglic... In opposition to uh, to vinegar and I think it's shaping up to be one of the best Walters, if not best Grand Tours, in a long time because of the route and those rivals. Then, in addition to that, we've also got just as a preview a couple of other podcasts that we've had on deck for a while, um, and we've sort of put them off because of busy schedules and so on. And we're hoping to get those out. So there's a lot of variety coming. I guess <laughs> is the point I'm trying to make. It's not all concussion focused. However, today is a concussion focus, and it's an interview that I did with an expert in physiology and public health from Tufts University, and the way this came about was somewhat serendipitously. I got a couple of emails from patron members, and here's particular thanks to Paul Whitney and Sam Fairhurst, who both contacted me about two weeks ago to ask about a product that they'd seen being worn by certain athletes during football matches, cricket matches, and American football. And it's a product called the Q-Collar. It basically looks like a horseshoe-shaped collar that goes over the back of the neck. And the idea behind this device is it then squeezes very lightly the jugular veins. And it's been promoted as a way to initially reduce concussion risk and later to reduce the harmful effects of repeated head impacts and brain injuries. And then coincidentally, I followed on Twitter the person you're about to hear me interview. That is a physiologist and an expert in public health and community medicine. In fact, he's professor of those at Tufts University. And that is Professor James Smoliger. And James has done considerable amounts of work trying to explain and debunk some of the science that underpins this cue collar. And so given your requests via Patreon and given my new interactions with James, I said, look, why don't we go about doing this? And James was very keen. In fact, he said if I ever feel like exploring it, he'd be more than happy to chat. And I jumped at the chance because I think it is really interesting. And so we dive into that. And that's the interview that you're about to hear. Some of it gets really technical. This is a niche subject and it involves quite specific academic discussions and debunking of tools, debunking of statistical approaches that are used. But what I really hope comes across is the rigor with which scientists have to try and scrutinize claims that are made by companies like this. And you can apply these same concepts to pretty much any commercial company or commercial product in the health sciences space, and there are many of them. And what James will talk to you about is why you look at it with a critical eye, a cynical eye, what you go about trying to debunk, how you try and disprove or evaluate the claims that are made. And by the end of it, I hope that you'll realize, first of all, on the specific issue of the Q collar, that there is no evidence that it is uh, protective. In fact, there is no biological rationale or premise by which it would be effective. And so the foundation on which it risks on which it rests, sorry, is very much discredited by James' and some colleagues' work. But more broadly than that, I hope that it gives you a dose of scientific skepticism that you can then take and apply to other claims that are made in this space as well. So let me not delay any further. Let me introduce to you our guest today, and hopefully a topic that gives you specific and general principles that you can take to become a more discerning thinker when it comes to health products and the claims they make. Here is our guest dr james smoliger welcome james thanks so much for your time i I really appreciate our serendipitous interaction on twitter that's led to this conversation
0: absolutely
2: thank you for having me so so just by way of context a guy called trent stellingworth who's a who's known to listeners tweeted something about the coverage in the Athletics World Championships, and you replied to it, and I replied to it, and through that I said, let me look into this, and I looked at your, your Twitter page, and subsequently some of your publications, and followed you, and then you got in touch to talk about this the subject of today's podcast, which is the cue collar, but I was going through your, your page at the Tufts University of your publications, and I have to say, sports science does throw up some really cool publications sometimes, but I've not seen someone with the range of things in their cv that you've got i want to read just a few titles of articles you published here's one called premature death in bodybuilders what do you know serious serious subject kids on the run is marathon running safe for children another serious relevant one maybe we'll tap into you for that one at some stage here's one called uh giving science the finger is the second to fourth digit ratio a biomarker of good luck a cross-sectional study Pseudo-medicine for sports concussions in the USA. Uh, where's the other one that I thought was so interesting? Woodpeckers don't play football. Implications for a novel brain protection device using mild jugular compression. And that, of course, is the main subject of today's podcast. But let me ask you this by way of background. How, how does a sports scientist and a physiology professor become a, a myth buster and a hunter of pseudoscience, the way that you seem to have done?
0: Uh, that's, that's a great question. I'm an oddball. Um, you know, my, my first degree is actually in veterinary medicine. And you mentioned Trent Stellingworth before. So Trent and I actually overlapped for one year at Cornell. He probably doesn't remember that, but I with the teams uh, sometimes. And uh, he, he and I overlapped while I was there. Um, yeah, so I'm a veterinarian by background. And then I decided I, for whatever reason, I got a PhD in sports medicine. And over the years, you know, I was interested in a lot of research methodology and statistics. And um, I, I think the the thing that started it all for me, there was a paper that came out back in I think it was 2014 that claimed that facial attractiveness was related to Tour de France finish. And so I, I, I look at this and I say, why, you know, do do, do more attractive cyclists actually finish better the Tour de France? I got a bunch of media coverage, and so I got my my friend and colleague Jerry Zaworski. He and I started looking at it, and we just started dissecting this and and. And this paper was complete nonsense, and I mean they had even used the word the term uh, peloton correctly. I, I mean it was it was all over the place, and so we started writing papers about this whole idea that look th- this is really bad research, and it's giving people the wrong idea about science and about sports performance, and then one of the reviewers of the paper mentioned something about digit ratio and i said well what's digit ratio and i started looking into it and you pull the thread and you start finding out that it's just it's the epitome of the crisis and so i started finding that there's a lot of really bad science sorry i just
2: i wanted to sorry to interrupt you like park hold that thought because i'd like you to start again at that on the digit ratio though and at the risk of derailing this podcast it is interesting can you just tell us what the digit ratio theory is, and what about it you debunk? Well, all of it, but but specifically how, how you went about that.
0: Right. So, digit ratio theory is that your second to fourth, the ratio of the second to fourth fingers on your hand, your index and your ring finger, are related to how much prenatal testosterone you're exposed to in utero, and that is somehow related to future sports performance, future disease risk, risk risk-taking behavior, and such. And um, there's a lot of research about it. In my opinion, it's all complete junk that's basically statistical noise and selective reporting.
2: Uh, There was a book. uh, What was the name of the book and who wrote it on that? I mean, it became a big deal at one point. It was was, part of it was Jamaican sprint success was digit ratio. uh, Rugby player success was digit ratio. Who, Who was the guy that did the book?
0: so john manning is kind oh, yes. of the, the the father of digit ratio research um i'm not familiar with his book uh specifically i'm familiar with his other papers but yeah
2: yeah yeah that's the name okay so <laughs> all right so that's that's one that's one in your uh, debit column what you you were then saying that you became interested in the statistical failures of some of the research and you decided you were going to pursue those and then i interrupted you so please please do continue there
0: well, well, basically, what I started finding is, you know, I really like statistics, and you know, and it's something I've spent a lot of time learning over the years, and I always wanted to make sure my research was done properly with, with the most robust statistical methods, and, you know, everybody's human, everybody, you know, makes mistakes, and there's, you know, at different points in one's career discover new things but i started discovering that there were some really shoddy statistical analyses done in different papers and as i started exploring this i started realizing that you know some of these issues in the research reproducibility crisis in that there's a there's a lot of problems out there there you know people's careers are dependent on producing positive findings or at least they feel their careers are dependent on producing positive findings and that's what makes for interesting media stories and there's a lot of incentive to have results which sound interesting. And that's kind of how I got into some of this research and especially in the sports performance field. I, you know I spent so much time learning about sports performance and what the factors are associated with it and then to start seeing that there's research that claims that you know digit ratio you know could be used for screening athletes. It, it just made no sense. And, and eventually, this sort of led me to a broader, you know, kind of myth busting within the field of sports science and exercise physiology. When I started discovering that the problems go beyond statistics, and especially whenever you get commercial interest involved, um, and I thought one of the reasons again to sports, the sports medicine, sports science field was to help people to help them make more, more informed decisions, to be safer, be better performers. And there's so many nuances and so many things that the public might not be able to understand. It, it just seemed like Getting from some, this myth-busting seems to be a valuable part of
2: the job. Yeah, do you think that these are we, they're certainly not unique to the sports sciences? The reproducibility crisis, I know, has impacted many fields of the sciences. But I do get the impression, no doubt because it's the field we're both in, that the sports sciences are quite vulnerable to it because they're media-friendly and because there's a professional sport angle, and we're all fans at heart – and so the selling point of bad science is a little bit easier sometimes in this field than it would be for some others. Would you Would you agree with that? And I mean, how bad is it in the sports sciences, would you say?
0: I agree 100%. Um, I, I think it's really been the sports sciences and, and has been so for a while. There's always some kind of new trend or some some new fad out there where people want a quick fix, whether that's to improve their performance or to prevent injuries or to treat injuries it's it's always there and the thing is athletes are very high profile i mean you look a few years ago with you know first it was kinesio tape you know everybody in the olympics is wearing kinesio tape Mm. then michael phelps walks out one day and he's got a bunch of suction cup marks on him everybody says well what's that about and then before you know it everybody's into cupping and and you see this all the time and it's very easy athletes are You know, their faces are everywhere, their bodies are everywhere, and they also represent, you know, the 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 best in, in human performance. So if Michael Phelps is cupping or, you know, some top volleyball athletes are using kinesio tape, we see that. And it's just like all these fitness magazines out there. They're telling you, here's the routine that this one person uses to be their best or to prevent injuries, and therefore people try to apply it to themselves, whether or not there's, there's real evidence or not. And I mm. think there's just so much celebrity endorsement out there. And even if a celebrity is not endorsing it, if somebody sees what they're using, people assume, well, it must work. And, hey, it's worth a shot.
2: Yep. Yeah, pretty much agree. I, I, th- I think it's a big, big issue. And it's sometimes well-intentioned. There's no doubt that there's, there are good intentions behind Absolutely. much of it. But then sometimes people will pick up uh, opportunistically and say, here's a product idea. And then they run with it. I suppose there's a broader question, and again, I'm at the risk of derailing or delaying, rather, getting onto the main subject, is a lot of the stuff that gets done, and you mentioned cupping, you mentioned kinesio tape, that power balance bracelet was, for me, one of the classic examples I can remember. Right. A lot of the time, other than the, the small financial cost and an opportunity cost, they, they they probably don't necessarily cause harm. Or would you reject the notion right. that, that athletes should just – do it because even if it doesn't really work, if the athlete feels it might, then go for it. Or, or, or would you draw a line? Would you set a bar below that standard? Or above that standard, rather?
0: Right. Um, I, I think it's kind of a case-by-case case type of basis. Um, you know, and it's how we define doing harm. I think something like kinesiotape, just the, the theories behind proprioception make sense. Whether or not kinesiotape, there's anything magic about it or whatever, that's, that's another issue. Um, you know, so I think in some cases, some interventions are completely innocuous and, and there's really no harm whatsoever. In other cases, I think interventions, you know, any of these things to improve performance or improve safety, I, I think it depends on a case-by-case basis. Some of them might potentially do more harm uh than good. Um, and I think especially with some of these protective devices, one of the concerns, and I'll get into this a little bit later, is mm-hmm. just this idea of risk compensation. If you feel safer because you feel a sense of protection, maybe you're going to play differently. Maybe you're going to have a placebo effect in terms of signs or symptoms of some issue, such as concussion, or maybe other people will behave differently, whether that's other players feel you're more protected or maybe team medical personnel feel okay, well, you're wearing this intervention or you're, you're taking this, so you're probably safer. So we're gonna take your complaints less seriously, or we're gonna assume you're at less risk. And I think that's where the real danger is. And I think that's kind of a case by case basis. It, it really depends on, on what the intervention uh, is. The other thing too, is that in many cases, you know, these elite athletes have nothing to lose. You know, If they're buying something for $200, they might not even be buying it. The team might be supplying it. it it's not essentially costing anybody anything. But when you're talking at the individual level about, you know, a high school student spending $200 on some sort of intervention that maybe they could have invested that $200 in something better that would have improved, you know, that maybe would have improved their safety better or helped their performance or something along those lines. So I think in some cases, some things might have a real indirect or direct harm. Sometimes it's completely inconsequential.
2: Yeah. I've certainly taken when speaking to coaches and athletes, of making them understand, that there's a there's a trade-off here. There's a cost-benefit analysis you have to do, and uh, sports science can very rarely give you concrete answers on either side of that balance. It's difficult to quantify right. the benefit, but it's also difficult to quantify the cost. Beyond the $200 or the however many hours it takes of time, there's an opportunity cost that's not always easy to see. But if you if you ever do come across something that's got zero cost and unknown benefit, then you would probably still do it. But the moment there's a cost on one side, you have to know there's a benefit. Otherwise, you're inviting something that may only be detrimental, even if even if indirectly. And I guess that is a you you brought up there protective devices, and that is a segue to the main subject. So I can stop (laughs) delaying us now and get on to the main the point of this conversation is the cue collar, and perhaps you can introduce it by telling us a little bit about what the cue collar is and how it came to your attention
0: great so um first of all i i want to start off by saying i do not believe the Q collar is effective for protecting the brain whatever that means and i i don't think all these athletes that are wearing it have any actual benefit from it other than maybe some Financial, you know, if they, if they make money by by mm. you know wearing the device, if they're being paid or anything like that, uh, but I, I don't think there's any benefit. I think there there is potential harm. I just want to get that um, up, up front. Yeah. So happy the key that. collar is a device that is worn around the neck, which is meant to lightly compress the jugular veins. So the jugular veins are the veins that carry blood from the brain back to your heart. And the idea is that by compressing the jugular veins, the Q collar will allow a little bit of extra blood to stay in the brain in, within the skull. And that will create this cushioning, in theory, around the brain. So this way, when you take a hard hit, the brain will kind of have this bubble wrap effect and it won't be as likely to get injured. And, and that's the idea, the general idea behind uh, the Q collar. So that's our starting point. Mm. So, um, let me just ask you so, very quickly and, and, then,
2: sorry, if I can just interrupt there and just say the the reason that that is positioned by the manufacturer themselves as potentially infective or, or plausible is because the mechanism of a concussion involves the movement of the brain inside the skull in this sort of fluid space that it's in and they, and, and it's funny, I work now in concussion. And I'll be the first to say I haven't gone into the neurology and the detail of it because I don't need to. I'm more interested in, this, in the systems that cause concussion, not the specifics. But they introduced this term called slosh. So before we, before we go into the evidence and so forth, or lack thereof, uh, maybe you can just, as a very basic primer, explain how a concussion occurs and why this device was positioned as plausible in the first place.
0: Right. Um, So uh, those are definitely two different things. I'll talk about the plausibility part second. We'll talk about SLOSH first. So um, SLOSH, it's a very, I would even say, oversimplified concept that the brain is this, you know, structure floating around inside the skull, bathed in cerebrospinal fluid. And that essentially when one gets a hit, the brain essentially, as you'll see in some videos, it bounces around and ricochets off the skull. And, and that's an, I'm not saying that's untrue, it's an oversimplification of tissue biomechanics. Our our skull has, you know, one set of tissue biomechanics, different parts of the brain, the white matter versus the gray matter have different tissue biomechanics. And so when somebody does take a hit, there is going to be some deformation in all these tissues in a complex manner. And what can happen, you can have as, as where there's the, the coup injury, where the uh, idea is that where the site of impact is where the, the brain is injured, and then there's the, the counter coup or contra coup injury where it, uh, it's actually on the opposite side of the skull from or the opposite side of the brain from where the impact took place. And this is all related to this concept of slosh that you know there is movement of the brain inside the skull um and and so that's the idea behind it and you see some of these videos of the brain just kind of jiggling around inside the skull uh they, they give an example in the 2015 will smith movie concussion and, and that's really an oversimplification of brain biomechanics I, in theory if you could stop the brain from moving around inside the skull yeah then maybe it prevents some of these brain injuries but this idea of just kind of keeping it in place more you know i would say that's, that's very much an oversimplification of tissue biomechanics so um, the second part to your question is you know, how the plausibility comes into this. And this is a, a very uh, a, a kind of long story um, that goes, that um, starts with the inventor of the Q-collar, um, David Smith, uh, who, who's a neuro, or I believe he's actually um, an in, internal medicine uh, physician. Um, forgive me if I get that wrong. I, there's a few neuro, neurosurgeons involved. I believe he was internal medicine. And so as the story goes, and again, all this is, uh, you know, available on, on different uh, interviews and such, um, he he emailed uh, another uh, researcher, uh, Greg Meyer, saying that he had studied woodpeckers and came up with a new concept in how to prevent concussions. And that's a very important word, prevent concussions, because the original, what well, you'll hear the theme is, this was originally designed to prevent concussions. And when we say a concussion, that's, you know, a, a series of you know neurological signs and symptoms from a distinct impact and we're going to differentiate that from subconcussive injuries which are or subconcussive impacts which cause chronic traumatic encephalopathy cte so smith claims that he had studied woodpeckers and he discovered that the reason that woodpeckers did not get concussions or any kind of brain injury is because they have this special muscle called the omohyoid muscle, which all of us have, which he acknowledges all of us have, and that he discovered that the omohyoid muscle in the woodpecker, every time the woodpecker hits its head against the tree, the omohyoid muscle um, uh, contracts and it compresses the jugular vein and therefore induces this tighter fit in the brain, this bubble wrap for the brain effect. And if you could somehow replicate this woodpecker's brain protective jugular compression mechanism in humans, then guess what? You may actually prevent concussions. And so that's the idea that started this all. The problem with this idea is there's no evidence anywhere, aside from Smith's saying that he discovered it, that such a mechanism exists. In fact, there's evidence to the contrary that woodpeckers actually do get brain injuries and that there's lots of other ways that they protect their brain, but, but jugular compression is not part of it.
2: So on what basis was the first claim made then?
0: That's a great question. Um, the, the basis for the claim is that he had studied woodpeckers. Um, it, there's uh, no peer review paper that ever got produced. There was no data, there, there was nothing. It's just a claim that he studied woodpeckers. Um, in fact, um, the PI for the Q Collar Studies, uh, Greg Meyer, um, he wrote an, an editorial uh, published in the New York Times in January of 2014, uh, talking about uh, how animals might hold the, the, the key to, the, to stopping the concussion crisis And in his his editorial, he says, we have observed woodpeckers use their jugular veins to, uh, you know, know, compress their jugular veins to create this tire fit inside the skull. And there's no evidence for it whatsoever. And um, so (laughs) basically, there's there's no data out there. Um, The only person or the only group of people claiming that woodpeckers use jugular compression to protect their brains are the people... Associated with the Q color. Now, what's interesting as a side note is after I started, um, after I wrote a few papers about this and started posting this on social media, that there's literally over 300 years of, of research examining woodpeckers. And um, the idea of, of using woodpecker biomimicry was first introduced for brain protection, was first introduced by a physician in the 1970s, and nothing's come of it. A- and just really showing that there's no evidence for this whatsoever. In a 2021 interview, uh, I believe it is, um, Smith actually states, well, actually we we weren't able to study woodpeckers. Um, We weren't able to get our hands on a woodpecker because in the U.S. woodpeckers are considered endangered species, which is actually also not true. Woodpeckers are federally protected, but they're not an endangered species. But other groups have looked at woodpeckers either through museum specimens or in overseas. There have been some groups that have actually studied live woodpeckers. Um, You you can study woodpeckers um, and you can produce data but
2: he hasn't. So, you you have, though. Well, not data, perhaps, but at least there is a peer-reviewed paper. In fact, there's a couple. One of them was the one I mentioned in introducing you. Woodpeckers don't play football. Implications for novel brain protection devices using mild juggler compression. That was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. I'll put, as always... All these links in the show notes so people can have a look at that. And in that article, you described a number of different things woodpeckers do. And I know this is a show about the science of sport and football, rugby, and so on. But I'm so interested in this uh, because I've, I vaguely remember reading pieces at the time. I guess it would have been 2014, 15, about how the woodpecker doesn't get concussed. And it's because of this, uh, what is it called? Omohyoid bone, you said. Is that right? And, uh, but you've said. Uh, the
0: omohyoid muscle
2: muscle not bone but you've described a number of them you worked with an engineer to write this paper maybe just as a brief aside why, why do well why do woodpeckers not get as much brain injury as you might predict given the head acceleration load they put themselves through well the, the answer is we, we really don't
0: know um how much injury they get um you know it the, the start to the to the question is um you know if a woodpecker does get some sort of brain injury like you know syndrome in the wilds it, it's you know would, would we find a bunch would we find these woodpeckers I mean a bunch of other birds cardinals blue jays and stuff they, they die in the wild at some point too it's not like we see a bunch of them lying around the forest other things will eat them. If woodpeckers are getting any type of <laughs> brain disease or anything, we're, we're probably not going to see. That, <laughs> that said, um, back in 2018, uh, a group, uh, I believe from Boston University, led by Farah, um, actually published a study looking at the histochemical changes in woodpecker brains. And they actually compared it to uh, other birds that, that don't have this repetitive head impact. And they saw... Um, phosphorylated tau, which is uh, perivascular or around blood vessels, phosphorylated tau, and that's that's a, basically a biomarker of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Now they can't say that this is pathologic. We don't know that they're having neurologic symptoms like people with CTE have, and we can't say yes, this is exactly the same thing. But it's we'll say from my interpretation of it, um, it's histologically or on a, on a microscopic level. The changes are similar to that of people with CTE. Now, the problem is woodpeckers don't have brains like humans. Woodpeckers have smooth brains. They don't have gyri and sulci like humans do. So they don't even have the same structure that would allow them to get CTE or something like that. Um, and, and this is one of the problems with animal models. They've got much smaller brains. Uh, their The anatomy is different. So it, it's hard to say they don't get a, head, a headache or they don't have symptoms. They're you know, you, you think about some of these things that we hear about with CTE with, you know, psychotic behavior and depression and suicide and and, and things like that. Well, those, some of those things, birds don't necessarily have the, you know, neuroanatomy to, to, to be a necessarily. And again, I, I don't want to go off on a broad, you know, large, you know, a uh, metaphysical conversation about, you know, woodpecker consciousness, but but it is a very different brain structure that said um they do have first of all woodpeckers aren't hitting their heads they're hitting their beaks which is very different than direct head impact and even their beak uh, the keratin in their beak the connective tissue in their beak is uh, very specialized to have special biomechanical properties that might we'll say absorb a little bit of impact they've got certain muscles in their beak with each uh with each impact those muscles are contracting and moving their beak in certain ways their head has certain types of, um, the, the the bone in their head is uh, a lot, I'll say, spongier. That might absorb some of the impact. And even the size of their brain um, is is a lot different. In a smaller brain, there's going to be, the axons are shorter. There's going to be less rotation, uh, less rotational forces. Um, so there's all, all these, there's, there's many, many different mechanisms that have been studied for over 300 years. There's, there's papers from the 1700s on this, all the way through modern times, with engineers doing finite element modeling to look at what happens in a woodpecker skull and like tissue deformation. But their anatomy is fundamentally different than a human. And, and um, also, to some of their function, you know, in terms of these muscles that they're using to stiffen or, you know, de stiffen, I'll say, if that's a word, uh, certain parts of, of their head and, and their neck with each impact, it's very different than, you know, being blindsided by a 300 pound individual in an unpredictable manner.
2: Yeah. Okay. So, the woodpeckers have many adaptations that may offer some protection against what I'm reading here, forces between 1200 and 1400 Gs while pecking. This is from a paper you just spoke about that describes these tower accumulations in the yeah. brains of woodpeckers, again, in the show notes. So the, the woodpecker turns out to maybe not be the most appropriate mascot for the cue collar. But nevertheless, the theory persists that if you can compress the jugular vein, you create what they themselves, and you mentioned this earlier, is a quote-unquote tighter fit of the brain in the skull. And this reduces the movement and therefore reduces the concussion risk. So let's shift from woodpeckers to football players, rugby players, whatever. Pick your sport. Pick your contact sport, boxes. And let's talk a little bit about that, because when you go to the QCollar website, you will, and I think this is probably a universal characteristic, find a tab at the top called Science, and when you click on that Science tab, you will see QCollar Research, and then it lists them, and it gives them these, it'll give you these summaries of what I'm counting here is probably a dozen different studies, both preclinical and clinical. So let's talk a little bit about the evidence that is offered in support of the cue collar concept and where that evidence fails to live up to scrutiny or to survive scientific scrutiny?
0: So the, the first the first piece of evidence that they use to support this concept of the cue collar, again, it comes back to concussion prevention. And I emphasize concussion mm-hmm. prevention in the distinct, uh, you know, individual hits that cause neurologic signs and symptoms. And um, in their original real premiere video um, to to demonstrate their partnership with um, a company called uh, uh, Bauer Sports Performance Group, um, or sorry, Sports Performance Group, which had uh, manufactured Bauer hockey equipment or owned it, on that original video, they, they mentioned the woodpecker, and then they mentioned another, another series of studies um, as far as concussion prevention as evidence for this, was this idea that the rate of concussions or the likelihood you would get a concussion was around 30% lower at higher altitudes. And in those two peer-reviewed papers, um, they claim that, well, at higher altitudes, maybe there is a little bit of brain swelling that happened, which would induce tire fit, and lower the risk of concussion, and that they they found that you know concussions were reduced by about thirty percent at higher altitudes. And this is actually how I first got introduced to the cute collar. Why, and the whole why does behind it entirely?
2: Why, why why does altitude cause cause brain swelling? And this is this is again part of the plausibility, and I think important because as we explore this, you and a colleague are going to show that it's not plausible. But let's let's just pause on that for a moment. Right. You go to altitude, and you get this tighter fit that's a normal well it's not normal it's pathological in some cases and potentially lethal but just let's talk about what happens to the brain at altitude
0: still um basically at high altitude uh and when i say high altitude i'm talking you know around 15,000 feet in general, and so that's right around like 4,500 meters Mm. above sea level. Um, Some people rarely get a pathological condition called high-altitude cerebral edema, and um, there's a lot of different theories on why high-altitude cerebral edema happens and why some people are more susceptible than others, Um, but it seems to relate to the hypoxia or lack of oxygen, Um, in the air in terms of partial pressure of oxygen in the air. So there's fewer oxygen molecules in the air. The percent of oxygen in the air is still the same, around 21%, but there's fewer oxygen molecules. And If there's less oxygen in the blood, hypoxemia. um, There's some sort of physiologic changes that happen. Um, Maybe it involves uh, a change in the way some ion channels function. Maybe it involves a a change in uh, something like nitric oxide synthase. And and there's some change in vasodilation in in the brain. But somehow it seems like the blood-brain barrier might be a little bit compromised. And we start getting... Fluid that winds up uh, through through some changes in the brain vasculature, we start getting extra fluid in the brain, and and this high altitude cerebral edema, again, usually is cur- occurring at extreme altitudes around 4,500 meters or more. It can occur at lower altitudes, but usually less than that. And it's considered a medical emergency. Mm. I mean, it's it's something that if left untreated, people will die from. Um, and so that's the, the idea behind it. And again, the physio, there's lots of different theories on the physiological basis, but it really seems to come down to changes in, in blood oxygen levels or maybe blood carbon dioxide levels. Um, but what really caught me, um, what introduced me to this whole tiger fit theory and key color theory was when this paper got published, a colleague said to me, um, this is kind of a funny story, a colleague said to me, hey, there's a new paper that links um, high altitudes to concussion risk. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. And I said, what altitude? And my colleague said to me, he said 600 feet. And I said, no, 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 that, that can't be right. It's gotta be at least 6,000 feet or something, 600 feet, (laughs) 200 meters, or 196 meters more precisely. Isn't enough to do anything. He said, no, it's 600 feet. I said, no, it can't be. And he said, here, let me show you. I I
2: also, I also also couldn't believe this. I, I opened this link and I saw this and I said, there has to be a mistake. I mean, 600 feet, is the, the, we've got a mountain here in Cape Town. I can almost see it from where I'm sitting. And you wouldn't even have climbed a quarter of that and you'd have been at 600 feet above sea level. <laughs> and so, so, so it's... it's anyway, the the, the the study in question was called Altitude Modulates Concussion Incidents, Implications for Optimizing Brain Compliance to Prevent Brain Injury in Athletes. And it basically looks at... High, is it high school football, if I remember correctly? And, and yeah they, they they define high altitude as above 600 feet so so you, you look at this and you th- what I'm assuming you had the same thoughts as' I've, I've had that's impossible <laughs> that's not altitude
0: yeah that, exactly so anyway I, I call my friend and colleague Jerry zavorski who's got lots of experience with high altitude research and, and and as and I haven't been a high altitude researcher but I you know I've taught it I designed our altitude environmental chamber and you know I'm, as a physiology person I'm very familiar with it. So I call him up and I say, hey, look, there's this paper that connects high, high altitude with concussion risk. His very first question to me was, what's the altitude? And I said, 600 feet. He said, surely you have to be mistaken. I said, trust me, I just had the same conversation with a colleague. It's 600 feet. So anyway, he said, well, this, this can't be true. And, and and the thing is too, when you really look at the this relationship between um, changes in the brain and an and elevation, it's not a linear relationship. It's not like okay, well, if blood oxygen levels go down, you know, at fifteen thousand feet, maybe they're half that at seven thousand feet. It's not linear. It's kind of a sigmoidal relationship, just kind of the way some of the physiology works out. So you you really wouldn't expect six hundred feet to make a difference. And just for um, for completeness, the way that they determined six hundred feet was um, by by essentially looking at. They had a bunch of data from high school athletes, um, a bunch of concussion data, and they took, you know, all these games and practices and they took the median altitude at which from their data set. And the median altitude was And they describe it. It would be like having, you know, a group of, um, you know, whatever you want to say, you know, a group of obese patients and the median weight was 400 pounds so you call anybody under 400 pounds the skinny patients or a group mm-hmm. of elite sprinters and you know maybe the the median 100 meter time is 9.95 so you call you know anybody slower than that slow people It, it it's just all kind of arbitrary you know 600 anything above 600 feet isn't higher altitude it was just a convenience point um so anyway jerry zavorski wrote a bunch of letters to the editor explaining why this couldn't this physiologic explanation made no sense. Um, and I'll also state too, something that's important. In, in these studies, in these original studies, talking about the effect of high altitude causing um, this, this tighter fit theory, and maybe it, we could replicate this to prevent concussions. Um, it should be noted that at the time, David Smith, the, the one that invented the cute collar, he had first applied for a patent in 2009. And these papers were published in 2013, and 2014. And Smith's conflict of interest that he actually had a jugular compression device designed to, you know, mimic the effects of high altitude wasn't mentioned in, in their first paper. It is actually mentioned in the second paper, mm. but, you know, they do talk about jugular compression and, you know, the benefits of this without mentioning that he's got a financial conflict of interest. Um, so, and then there were a few errors in the paper, like stating that the percent of oxygen in the air goes down at high altitude. I'm surprised it got past peer review. Um, yeah. But long story short, um, we later, uh, Jerry and I uh, later replicated the study using four years of NFL data, using the exact same data set, and saw that one year was a complete outlier. Altitude seemed to be associated with concussion, and the other three years it wasn't. And then we replicated the study again. Um, my colleague Zach Benny, and I, we did it for eight years of NFL data. And and there's there's no relationship between altitude and concussion. In other words, it's 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 a non-reproducible result, or it's it's due to it's just kind of a statistical fluke uh, due to due to chance. So, and in their original video discussing the cute collar and all the benefits behind it, again, they lean on two things very heavily. One, woodpeckers do it, which we know isn't true. And two, here's good evidence: there's fewer concussions at higher altitude. But we show that's not a reproducible effect. So the the very support behind the Q collar preventing concussions doesn't exist.
2: Yeah. So uh, okay. So so let's. I want to go back to the altitude study very quickly because I think it's important to understand this. What we're saying is that the the part of the justification for the Q collar is that it would compress the jugular vein and cause this tighter fit in the brain, and that that would be protective against concussions. And evidence in support of that theory was provided by altitude which allegedly would achieve the same thing causing this jugular vein presumably constriction of some kind that would cause i think you worded as more blood around the brain is that would that be correct i mean that's that's sort of how they yeah. worded it and and similarly this tighter fit. yeah that study is largely debunked and again i'm going to put this in the show notes the letter from your your colleague gerald Zavorsky ends I have not read as many letters of scathing as this, by the way. It says, In conclusion, the paper by Smith and <laughs> colleagues is filled with overzealous interpretations, wrong conclusions, and a blatant misrepresentation of the literature, such that true high-altitude physiology is inappropriately extrapolated to low to mild altitude for the convenience of supporting the author's hypothesis. <laughs> that's that's a pretty resounding boot that he's stuck into this paper. Yes. And the fundamental issues are, number one, the altitude that they're testing is not even close to the altitude required to cause these physiological changes. So the link between jugular compression altitude is absolutely implausible based on this. And secondly, it's a statistical anomaly where they find this, what they report is a 30% reduction, but it has such trivial clinical significance because in reality... It it saves, and I, I remember reading this in the paper, it, it literally saves about 0.08 incidents per hundred per thousand exposures. So it is it is clinically trivial, likely a statistical anomaly, and biologically absolutely implausible. So that's that's the altitude but the woodpecker part, they don't even necessarily have the physiological or the anatomical adaptation to wrap this muscle around the the jugular vein to cause this compression so on both fronts their rationale is shake well it's not just shaky it's almost non-existent would you is, is that a fair exactly. two-minute summary of the the state of their foundation
0: yeah and, and just as a fun side note we uh, Jerry jerry's actually published a paper um because as, as you mentioned 100 feet threshold is completely arbitrary. So what we wanted to do, we wanted to see is again with statistics could could you find a significant finding just through noise in the data? So we took another arbitrary measure of uh, that we just took another arbitrary way to divide up the same data set completely arbitrary and we said okay, let's look at NFL teams that have an animal logo such as um you know the Miami Dolphins or the Philadelphia Eagles <laughs> and let's look at NFL teams that don't have an animal logo, like the Tennessee Titans or the New York Jets. And and that roughly divides the NFL teams into two two even categories. And let's see if animal logo is associated with concussion risk. And lo and behold, teams that have an animal logo have about a 30% reduced risk of concussion compared to teams that don't have an animal logo. And our point with that, and we published that paper also, our, our point with that was if you divide, if you take a large enough data set and have a complete arbitrary division in it, you might find some sort of evidence of reduced risk. But if you don't have a solid hypothesis and a solid rationale for looking at that, it, you know, there, there's no there's there's no real meaning to whatever you find. It's not clinically meaningful, um, and that's what we felt. That 600 foot threshold for the um, out their altitude paper. We you know that we we felt that was the same thing. It's just it's pure statistical noise, and you're finding significance. And most importantly, it's not reproducible. And one other i will put in when Zach, Benny, and I did the um, the eight years of data. We actually won uh, the the journal, the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapies. Uh, yearly uh, award for excellence in research because of that paper <laughs> debunking the original NFL study, which, to the credit of the journal, is is really nice because we debunked the study published in their own journal years earlier, and um, we 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 got the their one and only annual award for uh, excellence in research mm. for that work.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well.
2: So now, despite this, despite the fact that the two pillars upon which this this product exists are crumbling, there are a number of studies in humans at the moment. They, they talk about studies, the human form study, the hockey study 2014, the football study, I'm reading it off their website, the soccer study. One of the studies they call is the Football Pivotal Trial of 2018 that resulted in FDA approval. How... How, how, I don't know how it works, actually, with FDA approval, to be honest with you, in the U.S. Um, presumably, you've you've got to jump through some hoops. I don't know whether they're particularly high or difficult to, to get through. But the existence of these studies would be persuasive to many who just look at the website.
0: Exactly. And, and, and that's, that's kind of where I feel some of my value is. Um, because it does come across as, wow, this is completely valid. And this is what I feel those behind car have done really well. They've set themselves up to have what appears to be good science on their side. And, and the problem is with so many things, and, and this is not unique to car with many things in pharma and in, in science and everything, you hear about the reproducibility crisis, and you hear about something that gets approved and then, you know, years after approval, we realize that it doesn't work as, as originally planned or there's a bunch of side effects. You know, the, the scientific process, it's all run by humans and it's all, you know, there's, there's flaws to it. That doesn't mean we should throw out science, but people don't understand the nuance of science. And I think what's happened, I, my particular opinion in this case is, there has been some really shaky science um, behind all the clinical trials related to this and so the the fda authorization one is is a great example of some of the um very shaky science where um again i think you need to be you know a fairly high level scientist who has the <laughs> who has the time and and in 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 looking at these studies and basically finding where the flaws are because if if you're not a scientist if you're not I'll say PhD trained, not not to sound elitist or anything, but if you're not PhD trained to to read the scientific literature and to relate one scientific paper to another and look back at the clinical trials protocols, you're going to miss these gigantic red flags in in these studies. And I think that's um, one of the things that most, most of the public isn't aware of.
2: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, this football pivotal trial, there were 142 players in the intervention arm and 142 in the control arm. And then they follow them over the competitive football season. And effectively, they do a pre-post comparison using magnetic resonance imaging data. And I'm just reading off the website now. So I'm putting it I'm putting in their words. And then I'd like your response to it. Results revealed Absolutely. that 77% of the collar-wearing athletes did not have significant changes to the white matter of their brain, while 73% of the non-collar-wearing athletes had significant changes. So effectively, what they're saying is that three out of four athletes wearing the collar look the same pre-post, whereas three out of four athletes not wearing the collar look different pre-post. Now, that, that one sentence, I'm a parent of a kid who's playing contact sports and I'm nervous about what I'm reading in the media and I'm saying, I want my child to be in the 77% who don't have significant changes to white matter. And then I say, but what do those significant changes to the white matter actually mean? And the parent says, I don't particularly care, but I'm happy for there to be none. So what what is a science, how, right. how do you how do you even broach that conversation now? And and why does it matter? I suppose is the is the
0: point. Right. So um, basically, and I think I think it's an important point. Who's using the cue People that are concerned about brain injury. Yeah. And, and that includes the athletes. And as you mentioned earlier, you know most of these athletes, like they're just trying to protect themselves. they're just trying to do what they feel the right thing is. And, and that's what these person and all the other athletes are doing. And so by reading these these things, they might actually feel, well, you know what? this might be just why I need to actually feel protected and, and make me feel safe. And maybe it's the decision that'll, you know, maybe, maybe the sense of protection is what makes the difference between participating participating in football or rugby or some kind of other high-risk sport and not because you see something like this and believe, wow, this is really protecting the brain. So um, when, when we really get into it, what they're doing, as you mentioned, is they're doing um, MRI research and they're using um, a specific type of MRI called DTI. It's a, it's a special advanced research technique. And it's important to note that this is a research technique. It's not a clinical technique. And so, you know, you're not going to, you know, have some kind of brain issue, go to your doctor and they're going to order a DTI scan and diagnose you. It, it, it's it's really a research-based technique. And there's some really interesting literature about it, even in the legal field should DTI imaging be allowed admissible in, in as evidence in the courtroom um, because it, it's, it's highly complex and it's easy to intentionally or unintentionally misrepresent um, brain injury with it. And so the idea of DTI is essentially, you're, you're theoretically looking at the structural integrity of the white matter within the brain. And so what they're reporting in these studies is, well, the white matter is protected. They look at the, you know, these different DTI values and it looks like, well, wow, they're unchanged. That must mean the white matter is preserved and the group that doesn't, you know, that doesn't have the caloron, their white matter is changing. This sounds like it's, well, wow, this is evidence. But the, as they always say, um, the devil is is very much in the details mm. here. Mm. Um, So one of the things with DTI is um, DTI is a technique. And there's all types of different measurements that you, you get out of, there's all types of different um, results that you get out of, a D, out of looking at DTI for any given region of the brain. So there's things like axial diffusivity and fractional anisotropy and, and mean diffusivity, and, and, and there's all these different parameters that, that you get in a scan. So you put the brain in your scan for each region, you might get four different numbers. That's for every region of the brain. So just for simplicity's sake, let's say you scan 25 different regions of the brain and each region has four numbers, that's 100 numbers. And so what what we're what they're doing? They're getting a lot of data, tons of data. And when you actually start to look at all the different papers together, it seems like it, it you know, at first it looks like oh, they're consistently finding, you know, this this protective mechanism that you know, the, the people in the cute collar group, their numbers aren't changing, people in the color, in the non-collar group, their numbers are, are changing and that must be bad. But when you're looking at that many different regions, you have to see, are you do, looking at the same region consistently? And so what we see in some of the studies, if you look at all the studies together, you might see in one study, they say that, you know, in, stu- in, in, region, in this region of the brain, in region A, we see a protective effect, that's good but they don't mention anything about region B. In a different study, they might mention region B of the brain shows protection, but they don't mention anything about region A. And so when you're looking at so many of these different regions and so many different numbers, just by statistical chance alone, you're you're bound to get some sort of significance. And in their clinical trial protocols, they're not reporting and saying specifically, we're looking at these specific 25 regions of the brain, Here's the specific numbers that we're looking for. They're just kind of doing it more general. They're saying we're gonna these, we're gonna look in a few of these regions, including but not limited to this. And and you know, in one in, in one study, they might find this parameter changes. In a different study, they'll find a different parameter changes. So that's part of the issue. And it sounds all fancy, and you see all these, these journals with showing pictures of the brain, mm. but in reality, the results, it's not consistent between studies seeing this effect. So yeah. that's our starting
2: point. I think um, on that, I mean, we, we've had a few studies been published in the last while in rugby players, retired rugby players, and some, some even active rugby players that describe the same thing, you know, changes in the white matter, axonal changes. And we, we often say the same thing. We say, well, what does it actually mean? So what? And the common retort to that is it doesn't matter what it means. The point is it's different. And you would rather not see a difference than a difference. And it's very difficult to reject that without sounding like you're simply being overly defensive from the perspective of, say, world rugby, who are defending the sport against various accusations and even lawsuits. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that is you've explained now how it's basically this scattergun approach. You're just firing away and you're going to hit something. There'll be a target. Right. If you fire enough bullets, you're going to hit a target. People say, well, no, you're just... You're just you're just tap dancing now. You're just making semantics to try and hide the reality that uh, head expo- head impact exposure, changes something, and this device protects it. So, wh- wh- what do you, what do you say then in response to that? Why, why, is, why does it
0: matter? What, well, once again, the devil's in the details. So, the, so it, it's based on the assumption that keeping the DTI number the same is beneficial, and that's a gigantic assumption. Mm. So one of the things there's a lot of studies that have used DTI for research out there. And one of the things that we know is that DTI numbers change during brain growth and development. And we know now that you know, um, you know, growth that the brain continues to be changing into our mid 20s, maybe even late 20s or so. Our brain is still, I'll say, essentially growing and changing. And if you look at longitudinal studies of adolescents, now we're gonna take contact sports and football and stuff out of the picture, just adolescents, their DT, not, uh, an adolescent DTI numbers will change from one year to the next. And there's studies to look at the effects of playing sports, there's you know like gymnastics there's studies that look at the effect of playing music and how dti changes throughout the brain so one could say that during adolescence such as in high school football players and even college foot, late college or in college football players we would expect there to be some level of change in the brain that's what normal is some dti numbers should be going up some dti numbers be going down that's what normal is and so to say that Oh, well, the numbers stay unchanged in the group or in the color. You could realistically interpret that as well. That's abnormal. the 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 numbers, the, these DTI values, should be changing in this adolescent group of athletes. Hmm. Um. So, so that's one important factor. Another thing is the math behind this. Um, and I always like to go with an example um, of, let's say, you had some kind of new supplement and you said it made people stronger or you know gave them better muscular endurance, and you know at baseline. Everybody could do 20 push ups, and half the people took the supplement, half the people didn't take the supplement. Let's say in the supplement group, let's say they improved to 25 push ups, but maybe not all those people, maybe on average they improved to, from 20 to 25, but maybe some of those people went from 20 to 30, and some of those people went down from like 20 to, to 5. Some people got better, some people got worse. That's what we're actually seeing in the in, in some of these studies. In the few studies where they reported their original data, in one of their original studies, they um, reported uh, DTI data on 21 individuals that wore the Q collar, and around half of them had an increase in their DTI, around half of them had a decrease in their DTI, and two of them stayed the same. So they're claiming, oh, no change, but in reality, no change is just a mathematical mean. Mm. They're the, At the individual level, people are changing, but just on average, there's no change. And so that's an important point that I think gets missed in a lot of this. If the average day is the same, that doesn't necessarily mean that the, at the individual level, people's brains are unchanged. Some numbers might be getting going up, some might be going down. Um, the other thing to, to reflect upon, too, is, again, DTI is, is a research experimental technique. And one of the things that's been done, there's been a lot... this done in brain injury models in in animals and one of the things that you might see is that again i'm going to use graphic terms here you know you whack a rat or you whack a a mouse on its head and you know give it a, a a traumatic brain injury and then you look at the dti data In a lot of those animals about a month after you've given it this whack on the head and given it a brain injury the dti data is back to normal it's as it's the same as baseline it's as if they never had a brain injury, but if you dissect the animal's brain, guess what? You see brain injury, and so that's why DTI isn't a clinically validated measure. And, and again, the FDA notes this in its authorization of the Q collar, that the 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 technique that they use to show effectiveness isn't clinically validated, and that's what we see in animal studies. Just because your DTI doesn't change hasn't changed, that doesn't mean that there's not some sort of actual anatomical change at the microscopic level which could be related to function too. So again the DTI is looks really fancy but does it really indicate that people's brains are healthier? I think we've got a good argument that that's that's not the you know you can't really support that either way. And what's really interesting in um you know the QCAR website they they touted it as the you know only you know the only proven method to protect the brain. And they they say it's, you know, it's proven for brain protection in um, the 2021 uh, New York Times piece on uh, about the Q collar, the the PI for the study, Greg Meyer says, well, we don't really know what the numbers mean, you know, but it's worthy of more research. And that's a very different message when the PI behind the study is quoted as saying, we don't really know how to interpret the numbers, but, you know, we should do more research. That's a very different message than Oh yeah it's
2: proven to protect the brain. Something that jumps out to me is if if I have a device that is sold as a concussion prevention device then mm-hmm. given that the trials go back to in humans there's a soccer study the football study 2015 there's a hockey study 2014 so we've had 9 years, okay let's take two off for covid, 7 years worth of competitive sport during which time I would have been expecting to see one of these studies report concussion rates in a randomized control trial with and without wearing the cue collar. And instead, I'm seeing studies using what you've, I think, described is a very exploratory research method, DTI, whose meaning we don't really know, but in none of these studies do they describe the actual outcome of interest, concussion. Is that because that they are not different and they're just presenting to you a side of the coin they'd rather you saw or are they still waiting on that do you know
0: well um i can give you the, the answer to that question um in 2021 after the fda authorized uh the cube collar and again the fda authorization was given um in um in february of 2021 i believe and uh, as you noted there is one instrumental study in that which i could talk about and that study has its own issues um and um so so uh the FDA authorized it in 2021. And then in the fall of 2021, a paper finally came out stating that um there was no difference in athletes that in concussion risk between athletes that wore the Q collar versus athletes that didn't. And this is a really important point. As I mentioned earlier, um, you know, there's in an in interview, uh the PI behind the Q collar, Greg Meyer, talks about David Smith contacting him with a, a woodpecker-inspired way to prevent concussions. Their original world premiere video in 2015, um, which you know, had some big-name people, including you know uh, hockey star Mark, Mark Messier in it, um, they mentioned the word concussion over 40 times. Their original clinical trials registries, if you go to clinicaltrials.gov and look at the registries, a few of those studies described the key collar as an anti-concussion device and, there, and one of those original studies actually um, said that the primary outcome of interest was concussion incidence or mm. the rate of concussion. And their original goal was to compare the risk of concussion in individuals wearing a cue collar versus the risk of concussion in individuals not wearing a cue collar. And I believe that was from like 2013 or so, 2014. And it wasn't until seven years later and lots of other papers later where it finally comes out after FDA authorization that, actually this doesn't work to prevent concussions. So Jerry Zaworski and I had been saying all along that there's no way that this should work. It, it shouldn't prevent concussions. Um, and and you know, they marched on with concussion prevention. Um, and then um, the first NFL player to start wearing the collar was Luke Keekly um, for the Carolina Panthers. And I remember uh, when he started wearing it, there were all these news media stories about his his new woodpecker inspired collar, which would prevent concussions and helpfully save his brain. And so I remember my students and I were talking about it. And a few weeks later, it, three weeks after he started wearing the collar, I remember my students came to class one day and said, did you see, did you see? And I said, did I see what? Luke Heakley got a collar on the, got a concussion while wearing the Q collar. They said, he did? And so live on TV, you know, complete with the collar on him, he gets concussion while wearing it. And there's some controversy about that too, but he, he missed, he you know, he missed a game after that and everything. He was in the concussion protocol for a while and, you know, he clearly got concussion while wearing it. Um, I believe the second player to get the uh, to start wearing the key collar in the NFL, um, uh, Vernon uh, Vernon Davis. Uh, there were one or two stories about him wearing the key collar to prevent concussions. Well, guess what? He got a concussion while wearing it twice. Um, so, what started? What's it from? From the lens I was looking at, what what I think was happening was they originally intended this to prevent concussions um even in their world premiere presentation they had um they had a neurosurgeon dr jaw that was on stage and he said you know i think you need to do a clinical trial and have people wear this collar and people not wear this collar and if you see that the people that you know don't wear the collar are more likely to get a concussion then you've got a home run and, and so i think they actually attempted to do that they attempted to get this on sports stars i personally think it all fell apart, and it, it didn't work as planned. Athletes got concussions while wearing it live on TV, um, and so then they started changing. In my but opinion, this is why they started changing their marketing to brain protection.
2: To be fair, though, when when we say prevent concussion, they weren't positioning it as to zero. No one, no one would make right, that claim, right. surely. And so, so the idea that uh, Keechley would get a concussion on television would have been <laughs> bad luck and not a great look for them. But I suppose they'd say, well, we never said it would stop concussion entirely. What we said is that if the normal risk of a concussion, and I know in American football, they express it per 1,000 athlete exposures. We we do it per 1,000 hours. So if the normal concussion incidence was, let's say, 17 per 1,000 hours, we're aiming to get it to 13 per 1,000 hours, which across 500 professional rugby players around the world would be a significant overall effect. So they'll, they'll argue that. But it's still interesting that no study has yet come out with that. Although you've actually said that there was a 2021 paper, which I'm guessing they're not listing on their research page, right? Because the only 2021 paper here is a jugular vein compression study that doesn't describe concussion as an outcome. So they're they're burying the negative finding. Unless I'm...
0: Yeah, until after the FDA authorization too. I I found the timing on that very interesting. And it's actually only... um, it, it's a uh, Yuan 2021 uh, high school sports-related concussion and the effect of jugger compression collar, a prospective longitudinal investigation of neuroimaging and neurofunctional outcomes. And even though this was their primary research outcome in, in one of their first projects, it, it's basically a one it's one paragraph buried in in this paper that the concussion group was, uh, or the collar group was, uh, you know, not statistically different in terms of concussion risk than the non-collar group.
2: Mm. yeah um interesting how they then move to to something that so now now the product does what, what they can measure so they've changed the the, the right. value offering right. to what can be measured which i think is a, a necessary but i suppose inevitable <laughs> shift um what would the study be that would persuade you what do you think they should do
0: so I think um, basically to, to persuade me, you would need a completely independent, in other words, not industry funded study, because all, all their all their studies have been um, uh, funded by, by Q30 Innovations through the same principal investigator, Greg Myers. As far as I know, he's been the, the PI in all the studies. Um, I know at one point uh, there was over $3 million uh, of, of research funding given to him. Um, I've, I've lost track since then. Um, and again, I'm not throwing Dr. Meyer under the bus in any way or implying anything, any wrongdoing, per se. I'm just saying there's only been one investigator and all of those studies have been funded by by uh, by Q30 Innovations. I think you would need a um, a large uh, trial, you know, a few hundred people that was prospectively registered, um, not not, um, you know, not funded by the company, a different PI, Um publicly available neuro, you know, publicly available data set with all the the data uh, from all different regions of the brain, all the different uh, DTI metrics, and a good statistician that's controlling for multiple comparisons. Um, And, uh, you know, also, you know, some other things like accelerometry data to Quantify impact exposure, um, well-trained medical staff, whether it's athletic trainers or, or um, sideline physicians or whoever, to be diagnosing concussions and to basically look at concussion risk and also um, also you know some of these brain imaging things. One of the things that we also see in, in these studies is they're getting a lot of data. They're not just getting DTI data; they're getting their prospective, their prospectively registered clinical trials are mentioning lots and lots of data all types of other different tests besides dti and they're not reporting all those different data points mm. um for instance um one paper uh about athletes that had a concussion uh, it, it, you know the, the one i mentioned uh, by uh, yuan 2021 they um the clinical trials registry indicates that they looked at um, Post concussion uh, symptom inventory. It's a survey. Uh, they, they looked at that. The clinical trial mentions that, but in Yuan's paper, that data point isn't mentioned anywhere. Even though these are athletes that got a concussion, in another paper that has the same registry, they um, that, so it's the same. It's the same sample. Um, that doesn't look at athletes specifically to add a concussion, they look at the whole group. They do mention the post concussion symptom inventory um, data. So, again, there's sometimes they're reporting one result that they, you know, something that they tested, sometimes they're not reporting on it. So, I would want a good study that says, here's everything we're going to report on and reports on all of it, that there's nothing missing from the peer review publications. Um, thought- the other thing that I think is important is good peer reviewers. So in that instrumental study that they uh, cite that was uh, important for the FDA authorization, um, their original uh, registered protocol said they were gonna attempt to recruit up to 500 athletes for it. And one of the things that they mentioned is 40 40 non-impact control uh, group individuals. uh, And they specifically say cross-country runners in there so they can tweeze out the effects of exercise versus impact. Um, That's actually not that control group of 40 runners not report anywhere in, in their studies. Hmm. So again, you know, some good peer review that could say, wait a minute, the protocol doesn't match the trial. There, uh, The other issue with your FDA, um, the study that got them FDA authorization, there's only one peer reviewer on that study, um, which is pretty unusual in the world of peer review research to only have one peer oh, yeah. reviewer on a study. Um, and, and that's publicly available information. Um, you could look at the study and it says, uh, who the editor was for that study uh, of the journal, and who the peer reviewer was, and I won't mention the peer reviewer's name. Um, you could find it online though. But that peer reviewer has actually spoken out and said that he had some major concerns with the study. They did a bunch of revisions, and he was really concerned that um, the study that that the comment that the way that they would use the study for commercialization would be inappropriate and inconsistent with what the study actually was. So again, you know, I would definitely want to be convinced. I'd want a study with multiple independent peer reviewers, and um, I'd want to make sure that everything in that study was presented at face value and not extrapolated somehow. If that makes sense,
2: would you imagine that they've tried to approach the governing regulatory bodies? And here I'm talking about the NFL, NCAA, and I, I don't again, I don't know the structure of sport. I don't know if they have to go through the Pac-10 or whether you'd have to go through SEC or what organization but it's interesting to me that these sports are under such pressure because of the concussion issues and not just concussion it's also those non-concussive repeated head impacts that they would be quite open to the idea of supporting a trial that offers this reduction yet that doesn't seem to have happened. do you know whether they've tried that and whether it's been rejected for these same reasons or is that unknown?
0: i am not aware if that's been attempted and i think one of the concerns is surrounding that is this it's it would take a lot of resources it would take a lot of money and i, I you know i i would actually even have trouble be, because everything we talked about earlier i think the entire basis for this is i mean the, the whole woodpecker story based on everything i've uncovered is is fictitious and that's the whole reason behind the collar and to invest a lot of money in independent research for something that probably doesn't make sense, I would rather see that money invested elsewhere. I would rather see if somebody has something that actually has a good scientifically sound basis, I'd rather see people put money into, into that. Mm. And, and that, that's that's one of the, the issues with the color when you go back to the earlier part of the conversation, is there potential harm from this? Um, there's just a new story about a high school in Wisconsin, the United States, that bought 110 Q collars for their athletes, you know, at at retail value, that's $22,000. I wonder if that $22,000 could have been better spent elsewhere. And likewise, you know, Big East, Pac-10, ACC, if they had a million or $2 million to spend on this study, maybe could they spend a million or $2 million to do something else to make athletes safer, whether that's hiring, more staff, doing better education, doing some kind of other study about education. And that that's where my problem is. I think, to answer your earlier question, if I saw a really good independent study that did all these things, that could convince me more if it found an effect. But I'm not sure if such a study is actually merited because the scientific basis for this is so weak.
2: Yeah, I don't disagree. I mean, it's we, we have the same dilemma in World Rugby. We invite research from around the world and we get a lot of proposals from people who obviously have some commercial slant it's not always apparent what it is but it's clearly there and they need access to players in order to confirm their theory but they can't confirm their theory right. without access to players so i actually have some sympathy we had a case of a protective headgear you know in rugby they play with a soft shell helmets it's not like in american football right and the company was desperate to have this thing done, rolled out in a clinical trial. And we said, well, we don't support that kind of work. And it it ends up being a little bit of a stalemate for them. Because you're right, the, the it's almost like the barriers to entry, research-wise, are so high but they can't, and they can't be overcome right. until there's research. But until there's research, no one wants to take down those those barriers. So it really is quite a dilemma for these these companies to overcome. Right. So w- whilst I'm not condoning the way they do it, instead I do have some sympathy with them for it. it must be difficult to uh, right. to to because it's, it's a proper catch twenty two that they're in.
0: Yeah.
2: Mm, mm. You spoke about the the cost to. A company or to the ncaa nfl etc let's shrink that right down and sort of end this off and talk about the cost to a parent <laughs> or a player or a coach or a sports director a medical doctor who wants to try and support and a young athlete who's concerned about concussion and they've heard this that's okay the Q collar probably not what they want to use but and i don't know what it retails for is it two hundred dollars two
0: hundred u.s dollars yeah
2: Is there any justification for saying, look, if you can afford $200, this thing probably doesn't work. might just be a waste of $200, but hey, why not?
0: You know, my my philosophy on that is, you know, it's, I I hate to see people waste their money. And Mm. I feel like if that's the philosophy people take, you know, um, if I really want to go to the dark side, I should start selling, uh, (laughs) selling my own, you know, concussion prevention for $125, and come up with some kind of, you know, animal inspired idea and just say, look, you know, isn't your, isn't your child's brain worth, worth $150? Um, You know, I I guess that that's the the dangerous rate to go down, but, but my bigger concern really is um, that it is, um, it is masking the potential dangers. One of the things I mentioned before this idea of risk compensation, that if you feel protected or you feel others are protected your behaviors might change. I know in one of the interviews that, you know, uh we had for an article, you know, the uh, I believe it was Greg Meyer mentioned, well, if that's the case, you know, we probably shouldn't wear seatbelts because you know seat belts, they might make us drive a little bit more dangerously. We take greater risks. And, and my argument to that is I think there's good evidence that seat belts work. And I would say there's not good evidence that the Q collar is effective. And so if you look at some of the testimonials on their website, um there's one I came across recently it was about, uh, I believe, it was a soccer player, and he said, you know, by wearing the Q collar now, he he's got you know greater confidence. Sometimes he'll take a really hard hit to the face, or he'll hit his head on the ground really hard. And now with the Q collar, he knows like he just has to take take a minute or two to rest and regain his composure, and then he can get back to he can get back to playing. I, I think I, I think that most. As like trainers and medical personnel that are on the sidelines would say, if you take a really hard hit and you need one two minutes to regain your composure, you should probably be being evaluated for a concussion in in that case. And I think that's the big danger. And again, he's saying now he's got the cue collar. Now that's all he has to do. He knows he knows he could be safe and just take those one or two minutes. And maybe in the past, he wouldn't have felt as protected. And I think that's, that's where one of the risks is with anything there could be a big placebo effect and you know people are describing not getting headaches after wearing getting everything and maybe that's real maybe that's placebo we don't know but i think the idea is that again some from some of these comments that we're seeing on on the website people feel protected i would argue that the protection isn't real and it's placebo mm. effect and then for anybody that doubts oh it could possibly be p- placebo if you look into some of the research on placebo and nocebo it can be a very very powerful effect and so if and sometimes we know with concussions that it might take a day might even take two days before people really start to feel the symptoms of a concussion and if people are having a placebo effect from this and are feeling protected they might be less likely to actually report that they're having a concussion and might be placing themselves in greater danger of getting more head impacts while, while having, um, you know, some level of brain damage. I I think that's, that's where I'd say there is a danger. And then, like I say, as far as participation goes, if it is that parent that is concerned enough to say, look, it's only $200 I want to feel protected. That's the type of parent that that really is concerned about their child's health. And my concern is that if they're trusting something like that to make decisions on participation or not, if they're comfortable with it, if this doesn't work, the only way people are going to know it doesn't work if it's, if it's too late, essentially. And, and that's my biggest concern. Like, it's just, you know, if, if, it, if it doesn't protect from subconcussive impacts, you know, maybe we'll find out. You Know CT really, you know, is is you know going to be manifesting itself later in life, generally not in its 20s, although there's pieces of that. But five, 10, 20, 25 years down the road, we'll find out it didn't work. And you know, all the decisions that have been made in that process, maybe okay, they're allowed to play high school football. All right, let's go on to college football, let's try out for the NFL. You know, it could be a decision that leads to years and years of extra contact that maybe they wouldn't have done if they didn't feel as protected. And again, I'm not anti-football or anti-contact sports. I just want people to make an informed decision. And right now I think the side of the story they're hearing is all the marketing side and the athlete testimonials and they're not mm-hmm. hearing all this nuance behind the science.
2: Yeah, and I suppose if in effect what's happening is that they are they're buying an illusion and then behaving as right. though it's real. So it's the emperor's clothes in effect. Look at me. There you and uh And I guess there's, and I think you've you've explained it, it's a a side of it that I didn't really consider this idea that once you've made this investment, even if it's small, you're, you're still making a conceptual investment that might be worth more than $200. The concept being that I'm now protected against the consequences of head impacts. Having made an investment, someone will be less likely to admit that their investment was wrong. And so now you throw up a barrier to what we know is the most effective way to identify a concussion and that's the athlete telling us that they don't feel right so that does that does create threats if i was a medical practitioner or a parent i would not want to create any barriers to open disclosure of, of the consequences so yeah the, i think these are why you know it it, it almost brings us full circle it's you, you can some people might dismiss a lot of the discussion as you know, the details and the technicals. I mean, what's the harm? You know, what could go wrong? Well, the truth is <laughs> not much might go right. And if there's even the risk that something goes wrong indirectly, then actually you're worse off than if you didn't make this investment. And that's very important for people to think about. Good stuff, James. Thanks very much for this. Really have appreciated your time. I, I can see a few conversations about digit ratios and death and bodybuilders and some of the other funky things you've done in the past. But I think this has been a very good exploration. So thanks very much for your time. And hopefully we'll speak to you soon. Well, thank
0: you so much. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. And that is that from James. Unfortunately, what happened last night was I did this recording with him on zoom. And when I listened back to it, I discovered that the last two minutes or so of James's sound were affected by some tech glitch that created this reverberation. You might, in fact, have heard it in his last uh, words there, as, as he sort of said thank you at the end. And it made his last few minutes unusable, which is a real shame, because the question that I asked him to close off the podcast was what I think quite an important one. And it's important because... What you've just listened to of course is james going into some quite specific and technical detail about this particular product you know especially that bit about the dti the tool that's used to evaluate changes in the brain over the course of a season that stuff's really technical and if you don't come to this with a lot of time on your hands and in fact some fairly significant specific knowledge about the tool it would be very difficult to critique the studies that get published. And so that's why James, in effect, is doing a service. But there's a real risk here that you listen to this and and you feel disheartened. You say, my goodness, how am I, mother of two or father of a 15-, 16-year-old aspirant rugby player, meant to critique the claims made when it requires such specific knowledge? And so what I asked James was whether he could offer any advice to people who lack the time and who lack that specific scientific knowledge as to how they might be more discerning and critique claims that are made. And his answers were important enough that I wanted to just share them, so I'm going to paraphrase what he said. And the first point is that when you encounter claims that are significant, simple, and revolutionary, you should always bring a healthy dose of doubt. It's that old saying or adage, that if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And so bringing a degree of skepticism is important. If you bring, and this is me now saying, not James, but if you bring hope, then you are going to be deceived. And that's the challenge for parents, because they are hopeful that device like this can work. And so they come to it wanting to believe. And you have to, and it sounds lousy, and I hate to say it, but you have to take the opposite view. You have to come to it ready to dismiss it as too good to be true, and then be willing to be persuaded otherwise, as opposed to the opposite, where you come hopeful and set yourself up to be effectively manipulated and persuaded that your hope is correct. And and that's the first point. And so it helps to be cynical. Uh, let's say skeptical, less less extreme than cynical. But that's really important. And then the other thing James said that I think is really important is that when you look into these kinds of claims, be very aware of who is making them. And if they are being made by people who are affiliated and therefore conflicted, and you cannot find the voice of independent experts that supports those opinions, then you need to double up on that skepticism. So it's very easy, for instance, in this product's case to go to a website and read testimonials, by athletes and by researchers, but they are invested in that message. And what James then suggests is that you must look for independent voices, people on the outside who have nothing to gain from their opinion or potentially endorsement or positive confirmation of certain claims. They are the voices that you'd be more interested in. Now, it's not always easy to know who's truly independent and who's not, but it's usually relatively easy to know who is conflicted. And again, if there are no independent voices, then that should be a warning sign that nobody outside of those who benefit directly from a product have spoken out in support of it. And if that's the case, then I think you have reasonable grounds to retain that cynicism or skepticism that you brought to the discussion in the first place. So those were the two points that he shared, and I echo them. I think that they apply to everything from supplements all the way to products like that that we've discussed today. And then finally, of course, you could listen to podcasts like this, where people do try to take down and explain the science with a healthy dose, dose of sincerity and sometimes skepticism. So once again, a massive thanks to James for his time. Really do appreciate it and all the efforts that he's put into trying to explain this and other pseudoscience concepts. Hopefully we'll hear more like it in the future. Thank you for listening. As I said, we now embark on a journey of concussion discovery in amongst Walter coverage and a few other interesting side topics to boot. So we're really looking forward to having you join us for those and whatever else the world of sport and sports science throws up. Thank you once again for listening. Thank you once again for your support and until next time, goodbye.